Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. episode of the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Menorini Silicon Biosystems, for their support of this program. Now, before we get started with today's show, I'd like to share a little about Health Tree Cure Hub. This is a revolutionary way that you can find help navigating your myeloma and a remarkable way that you can help accelerate myeloma research. In Health Tree Cure Hub, you can connect your medical records to track your labs, find personalized treatment options, and find open myeloma clinical trials. At the same time, you can help accelerate research for myeloma investigators who can benefit from studying real-world evidence from thousands of myeloma patients. And as always, personal information is kept private, and survey results are aggregated and anonymized. So to give you some examples, we're using Healthtree Cure Hub to help Irby Shaw at MSK on a study to understand how diet impacts myeloma progression. We're also helping Craig Hoffmeister at Emory University to better understand how patients use opioids and cannabis for pain management with myeloma. We performed a survey with you about MRD testing to understand your perceptions and knowledge about it. And each time we do this, we save these investigators on average $150,000 and a year and a half to facilitate this research. So why, why does that happen? Um, if a researcher has an idea, they need to get funding, get IRB approval to run the survey. If they don't have enough patients at their particular center, they have to sign cross-center agreements for data sharing. And that all takes significant time and money. So thanks to your support and your participation, our average time to complete a survey is four to six weeks with hundreds of you responding and we provide the data back to the investigators for free. So I just want to say thank you to all who have participated in Healthtree Cure Hub because in the past, researchers couldn't do this type of work because it was just too expensive and time-consuming. So we're opening up completely new methods of real-world evidence for researchers by helping them help us. And the possibilities for this type of research is really endless. So if you haven't already, please create a Healthtree Cure Hub account at healthtree.org forward slash myeloma. Then you can click on apps in the menu and select Cure Hub because you can help speed cure, a myeloma cure for us all. Now on to our show today. Um, MRD testing, as we all know, has become kind of a hot topic in myeloma, and we welcome Dr. Benjamin Derman from the University of Chicago to join us today to discuss how MRD testing is and will changing myeloma treatment uh, and FDA approvals potentially. So Dr. Derman, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, we so appreciate you joining. So let me give you... Uh, give an introduction for you before we get started. Dr. Benjamin Derman completed his education at Northwestern University with his postgraduate training at Rush University and the University of Chicago. He's Assistant Professor of Medicine and now Director of the Multiple Myeloma Clinic and Tumor Board at the University of Chicago. He's a member of the University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center Clinical Trial Review Committee to review new trials. And his awards include Resident Teacher of the Year Award, 
Chief Resident and Chief Fellow in Hematology, and a Postgraduate Teaching Award at the University of Chicago. He's the Principal Investigator on the MRD2 STOP study and is Principal Investigator on a large number of BCMA and CAR-T studies. He serves on the editorial board for Blood Advances and is a peer reviewer on many publications, including Journal of Clinical Oncology, Blood Advances, and BMT. He's an expert on MRD testing, and we just look forward to learning more about that particular topic today. So with that, let's get started on some MRD testing basics. So I think, Dr. German, we might want to start by just going over what is MRD testing and why should patients really care about this? I mean, that's a great way to start, uh, and thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Yes, MRD is really at the heart of, of everything that I do with patients, uh, both on the research side and in clinics. So what the heck are we talking about? So MRD used to refer to something uh, minimal residual disease, and now the name has slightly changed. You might notice the nomenclature changing to measurable residual disease. Um, you know, uh, one doc who does uh, MRD work in uh, leukemia has said there's nothing minimal about minimal residual disease, so we should change the name. But MRD in myeloma refers to low levels of myeloma cells that are detectable really only using advanced diagnostics. The way I like to describe it to patients is think about it like this. Imagine a diver is getting ready to dive into a pool whose depth increases along its length, you know, four feet on one side, 12 feet on another, let's say. And the deepest end of the pool is just beyond this diver's skills to reach, and it sort of remains inaccessible to them. And now I've made it more challenging because I'm going to say that they've been tasked with finding a small coin that may or may not have been cast somewhere into the pool. They don't know if it was actually thrown in there or not. So if they're lucky, the coin is going to be found at the shallow end of the pool, and it won't require much effort to detect. That might be like our conventional MRD tests that we use to look for disease, either in, in the blood work with light chains or the M-spike, or even just looking at the bone marrow biopsy, you know, um, using our standard methods. But more challenging would be if the coin is found in the lower depths of the pool, but still within their capacity to, to obtain. So they could still reach the bottom, maybe it's six or eight feet, right? Um, and that's really our MRD testing. These are uh, more sensitive techniques, allow us to dive deeper to look for disease. But it's still possible that that coin could be in the deepest end of the pool that we cannot reach. And more frustrating is it may be not in the pool at all. And how, how could we know? And that's really where we talk about the limits of MRD testing, which we can get into. But that's how I like to think about it, right, is that we have these different techniques that allow us to get, you know, zoom in more and more and more um, to find where the disease may be, but there still may be disease beyond what we can detect or there may be nothing at all. And now, that's a great explanation. I love that analogy. There are also different types of MRD testing now, right? Some blood-based, some, um, and it's not just all one, one type of test, right? Correct. So traditionally, we've relied on bone marrow biopsy and aspiration, uh, which is the liquid part that we take from the bone marrow. So any patients who are listening know very well what that's about. And, uh, you know, traditionally, we've used bone marrow testing to look for, for MRD. 
And there's really two very popular techniques that are used. One is called flow cytometry, and one is called next-generation sequencing. So you may he hear me refer to flow and NGS to refer to those both. Flow cytometry looks at the markers on the surface of the myeloma cell. And, uh, you know, the technology has improved over the years such that now if you are able to take 10 million cells out of the bone marrow, you can find a cluster of 20 of them, and that gives us a one in a million type of sensitivity, as we say. And when we say one in a million, that refers to 10 to the minus six. We're looking at trying to find one abnormal myeloma cell out of a million total cells that we've analyzed. Now, next generation sequencing can actually do the same, but with a fewer number of cells. You only need about two million cells in order to pick out you know, a single abnormal cell per million. Uh, and those techniques are still, you know, t that have that deepest sensitivity, what we call 10 to the minus 6, is, is still relatively new overall. And some centers may not have it offered or may not, be, you know, have it, especially flow cytometry, while you can take a fresh specimen and analyze it, and you don't need to have what's called a baseline um, uh, tumor sample with a high amount of disease. All you need is that fresh sample, and you have to run it. The, the issue is that it requires, you know, um, specialty uh, pathology to really be able to, to do it at that 10 to the minus 6 level. NGS can be done um, centrally. Um, Adaptive Biotechnologies has an assay called ClonoSeq. It's FDA cleared, so we can send samples off to them to run uh, a sample. And the, and the nice thing about that is it's it's really standardized and centralized, so it's done all by one place, but of course that comes with additional cost. And the biggest thing is you need a baseline sample from, you know, time ago potentially where you where somebody had more disease to be able to pick up the myeloma fingerprint, so to speak. But now we've moved not just from doing bone marrow biopsies to now doing other things. So PET scan is one thing, right? That's an imaging test and MRIs mm -hmm. as well. And you know, uh, what we're looking at is, um, you know, looking at disease outside of the bone marrow, what's referred to as extramedullary disease. And extramedullary disease, uh, you know, is not something that we're going to be able to pick up on a bone marrow biopsy, so that can be helpful. But, you know, recent studies have shown that PET scans are relatively insensitive to picking up MRD uh, when... Um, you know, when the bone marrow hasn't been able to. In other words, it's very rare to see the PET scan pick something up when the bone marrow hasn't. And so that's led some interest into the holy grail of MRD testing in myeloma, which is the peripheral blood, the blood test, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if we had a blood test that we could do that would tell us if there's disease present or not and, ha and be able to circumvent having to do a bone marrow? And that sounds that would great. Be great. The issue is, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, every, mm -hmm. every patient's dream, every uh, physician's dream, I think, too. The issue is that myeloma really likes to stay in the bone marrow, and it doesn't really like to circulate in the blood. So on average, we see that the blood is about one to two times less sensitive. Um, we call it logs less sensitive than the bone marrow. So in other words, if I looked at... Um, you know, uh, a million cells in the bone marrow, and I saw, um, you know, one cell per million in the bone marrow, 
I, you would need to have 10 to 100 cells per million in the blood in order for us to be able to detect it. So mm. the blood is, is less sensitive. Um, and so maybe with newer technologies we'll get there, but so far that's been a consistent theme. Now there's this newer um, idea that instead of looking for the myeloma cells themselves, let's look for the proteins that myeloma makes. And that's called mass spectrometry. And if we want to get into that a little bit more, I'm happy to do that. But basically, mass spectrometry is this ultra-sensitive technique to look for the proteins. Think of it like um, the, the end spike that we look at on the serum protein electrophoresis, but kicked up multiple notches here. And mm-hmm. it is a very sensitive test. It's a very sensitive test. And that so far has shown the greatest promise uh, in terms of potentially complementing the bone marrow. There are still cases where the bone marrow picks something up and the blood doesn't, and the blood picks something up and the bone marrow doesn't in these cases. But right now, I would say that's really leading the front in terms of a peripheral blood test that uh, really has the potential to be used as an MRD test. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to watch the progress as that kind of moves forward. Um, so maybe you can go over some basics too, like how, when, and why is MRD testing used for care after myeloma treatment, following myeloma treatment? Yeah. I mean, I think there's really three reasons that we are, in the, as a field, are interested in using MRD. The first is for prognostication in order to help patients understand how long will, they, will their disease remain in a response before it progresses, and potentially how long will their survival be uh, in the long run. Uh, mm-hmm. The second thing would be to use as what's called a surrogate endpoint for clinical trials. I think we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is uh, to guide decision-making in the clinic. Now, right now, the strongest evidence for MRD is really only with that first point, which is prognostication. So patients, it, it, it's, not, it's not profound to say that having less disease is better than having more disease. And being MRD negative, right. <laughs> meaning not having evidence of disease, is better than if you had evidence of disease, being MRD positive. Uh, and now we have several trials. In fact, there was a study done that analyzed 44 different trials. We call it a meta-analysis of 44 different trials. And they found that MRD negativity leads to better uh, overall survival, the time uh, to death, of course, how long people are living, and the time to progression as well. Um, when you look at, doesn't matter what is the sensitivity of the test, the type of test, the risk of the disease, high risk or standard risk, the setting in which you do it, newly diagnosed versus the relapsed refractory setting, all of those things, in all of those situations, MRD negativity is associated with better outcomes. So, you know, many of the patients in my clinic, <clears throat> and myself too, are very interested to know if patients are MRD negative because I can tell them, hey, you know, I, I think you're likely to do quite well, and I think your prognosis is very good. So it's kind of like a, you know, um, a checkpoint along the road where we can say, you know, are you likely to, to enjoy a long response or not? Um, but so, you know, there are opponents, I guess I would say, of MRD that say, 
it doesn't change what you're doing, so why would you measure it, right? Um, you know, right. if you're not going to mm-hmm. change what you do, if you're going to continue lenalidomide maintenance forever, then why are you doing this? And I think those people have a point. Uh, and I would argue that um, I think MRD is already being shown that, uh, that it's possible to use this in clinical decision-making, um, and, and maybe we can, we can touch on that in a little bit. But one of the things that I really like to do is set up a trend. You know, it, one result is not necessarily going to change my mind on what we do, but setting up a trend to understand what is happening with the disease is super important. You know, there was a trial that was done that looked at conventional responses. So many of you may be familiar with what is a a very good partial response or a complete response. Um, A VGPR refers to a 90% uh, reduction in the protein uh, complete response or a stringent complete response essentially refers to no evidence of disease by bone marrow or blood testing with conventional means, not MRD testing, just the conventional tests that we use. And this study showed that it didn't matter if you were, what your response was by conventional means. If you were MRD positive, your outcomes looked pretty much the same. It was only the mm-hmm. patients that were MRD negative that had the better outcomes. So we used to be very excited, you know, when we saw a complete response, but it's becoming increasingly common, and yet some of those patients still progress. So you know, we sort of have to move the goalpost a little bit, in my opinion, to say I think MRD negativity is a very worthy goal, right? Uh, and to yeah, set up a sure. trend, you can see, does MRD negativity, can, is it, are you able to sustain it? You know, are you able to keep, your, you know, keep the disease uh, away at this very deep level? Then, then that's when we can start to potentially pull off treatment, right? I think that's where I'm really interested in. And and we're leading a study precisely to look at that, um, and I can touch on some studies that, that have done that as well. But I think that's really right now in terms of the, you know, on treatment or post-treatment, especially after transplant, that's where we're re- I'm really interested in. The, the, the slippery slope is what do you do if patients never get to MRD negativity or turn back to MRD positivity? What does that mean? And is that something worth? going after? Is it worth chasing after? Yeah, it's a tricky situation because I have some friends who have been MRD positive for a very long time. They have this low level of disease and they are on maybe one particular therapy and have been for years. And so there are some patients, I know what you're saying is absolutely true. The general trend is if you're MRD positive, it's worse typically than being MRD negative. But there are some patients that, that have this low level and they just keep keep going on, you know, for for a decade or more. So right. that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this concept of of an MGUS like phenotype, meaning mm-hmm. you still these patients have residual disease, but it's almost like you've reverted it back to its earliest stages, earliest precursor stages that mm. make it very unlikely to progress into myeloma again. And you know, identifying who those patients are is extremely important. Um, the Spanish group does a lot of work on flow cytometry. They are the flow wizards of the world in myeloma, if such a thing exists. And they have identified this MGUS-like phenotype. In other words, 
the, we we have a we can identify this profile that identifies patients who still have residual disease but don't progress. But it's still a rare um, percentage. You know, it's a small percentage of patients, somewhere in the 10 to 15 percent range. Probably, I think it was actually under 10 percent um, in this small study. So, I mean, those patients exist. I'm not saying they don't exist. Um, but they're they're kind of like unicorns in my opinion. Um, they're out there, yeah, that makes sense. but 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 hard to find. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's uh, a key thing to remember here. You know, we did a survey actually of um, clinicians, and we asked them, you know, in this first iteration of the survey, hey, you know, are you making decisions based on MRD? And about 35, 37 percent, actually, to be exact, of patients. I mean, of respondents, the clinicians, said that they were making decisions based on MRD, but we didn't go any further into it. And I felt a lot of regret about that. So we we did the survey again, and we got even more people to respond, and we tried to get more community providers as well. And, And this time, we didn't just ask, are you making decisions based on MRD, but we gave common clinical scenarios and gave them disease characteristics, and then we said, you know, are they MRD positive or negative in these situations, and ask them to uh, comment on how, what they would do. And then we would ask them what they would do if the MRD result was the opposite. And when we did that, we found that actually 60% of clinicians were making decisions uh, based on MRD testing. So I think what people say and what people do might be different things in part because yeah, once you know that answer once you know that answer you can't really you can't really ignore it you know it's out there it's it's this very subtle influence i think on our decision making now i just you know saw another survey that was done of patients finding out what their perspectives are on mrd testing and you know i think something that you might have been touching on is you know mrd negative results of course make patients feel happy cuz that's the best result mm-hmm. that you can have. But MRD-positive right. results do have a negative psychological impact on patients. I'm very acutely aware of that. So I think anytime we give MRD results, or if you're a patient receiving MRD results, you have to ask to put that into context, right? Somebody who has two cells per million, that could be a great result if you were at 500 a year ago, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you have to always put these things into context for patients. Otherwise, what are we doing? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Plus what you're saying, the trend is so important. I mean, you're watching it over time. And you don't want to take somebody off treatment too early if they're not stabilized, you know. And, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, yeah, I understand the psychology of that. <laughs> as a and, and, you know, we call it multiple myeloma, but some people refer to it as the multiple myelomas because of the different ways that that myeloma presents and behaves. And patients who might have high-risk disease characteristics, even if they're MRD negative, that may not be enough to really tip the scales, whereas somebody who has standard-risk disease and should behave, their disease should behave, um, you know, more politely, so to speak, those might be the patients who potentially we, we might even be curing. And MRD negativity serves as a way to define the absence of disease in order to actually identify who might be cured. So, yeah, again, you know, context is very important here. 
Yeah, and, and it seems like another tool to kind of more personalized care, in my opinion. Absolutely. Like what you're Absolutely. saying, the standard I mean, risk versus the high-risk patient. Yeah, and actually in that survey I mentioned where we, we asked clinicians what they do, we also included high-risk and standard risk to see how that changed. And that had more of an impact on decision-making than MRD, but I think those right now are the two critical pieces that affect um, patient care. You know, and myeloma is what is the disease risk um, and, and what is that MRD? And that you can know up front, but then as far as MRD testing, that's kind of like that checkpoint in the middle that helps us uh, modify things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's so fascinating to hear that they're, they are using MRD testing in that decision-making process. So interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, let's talk about something else also that could, could be meaningful for the continuation of innovation in myeloma, which is potentially using MRD testing as a clinical trial endpoint. And I think we need to go back to basics and say, and have you explain what is a clinical trial endpoint, and um, let's start with that. So the age-old uh, saying is that we want to adopt a new treatment or a new treatment regimen if it does one of two things. It improves overall survival, how long people live, or and or it improves a patient's quality of life over the existing standard of care. I would, I would, you know, and those are the two things that probably matter most, not that probably, that matter most to patients. In myeloma, the overall survival in the early 2000s was measured in two to three years. Now it right. might, we don't even know because it's increasing too quickly to know, but it, it's at least a decade for most patients, right? So when you do a clinical trial and we, we, we have an, a, a regimen of interest, are we going to wait 10 years to see that signal um, and then adopt that treatment? And by that time, we have new treatments that are coming down the pike that we're more interested in. So this led to um, what's called a surrogate endpoint called progression-free survival. So a surrogate endpoint is the idea is that you find something that happens sooner in this case, but is sort of used as a prediction of, of, of overall survival in this case. So progression-free survival is this idea that um, it's the time not just to death, but to progression. So if a patient is on a treatment for five years and then progresses, that counts the same as a patient who never progresses but died after four years from something else, right? So mm -hmm. the, the reason for the death doesn't matter. The reason for the progression doesn't matter, but they're, they're counted the same. So, so progression-free survival is typically shorter. Well, it should always be shorter than overall survival. And that has been used in many different cancers, myeloma included, the FDA, who reviews the data for large trials and, and is in charge of approving these drugs, accepts progression-free survival as a, a surrogate endpoint. Now, PFS, progression-free survival I'll refer to, PFS still takes a long time, especially in newly diagnosed myeloma, right, which is kind of what we're focusing on a little bit here. Right. Right. That could that could take five or six years, which is still considered to be too long. And if you're a drug company and you want to get your drug out there sooner, that's 
you know, that's too long. And if you're a patient and you want access to novel drugs sooner, that's too long. So MRD negativity has become very attractive as a clinical trial endpoint because the thought is, I just told you, it's been associated with improved progression-free survival. It's been associated with improved overall survival. Why should it not be used as a surrogate endpoint? The FDA has yet to accept it. And in part, it's because, I mean, we can get into the the nitty-gritty, but the idea here is that to be accepted as a surrogate endpoint, you can't just take a bunch of trials and show that it's associated with PFS or, or OS or overall survival. What you have to do is show what's called trial level surrogacy, which means the intervention that you did to improve the rates of MRD negativity was also associated with an improved overall survival. And that takes randomized phase three trials, many of them, and it requires measuring with the similar techniques, with a similar depth, and at similar Mm -hmm. time points so that you can put that all together. And MRD up until now has been the Wild West. We were using 10 to the minus fourth, one in uh, 10,000 cells, 10 to the minus fifth, one in 100,000, and 10 to the minus sixth, one in a million. And we've been using flow cytometry or NGS. We've been using different techniques. So there is this effort being put together by uh, industry, by uh, independent statisticians, and by myeloma research groups called the I-squared team, which is looking to um, generate the data for this trial-level surrogacy, but it's not there yet. And, you know, the FDA in particular has drawn their line in the sand that they're really going to need to see significant, um, you know, uh, they're going to need to see this data in order for them to accept MRD negativity. Part of the reason for that is that, um, you know, there have been trials where patients have had higher rates of MRD negativity with some newer drug, and yet they had um, worse overall survival. More patients died. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the drug was too toxic, right? It caused too many side effects. Uh, In particular, with uh, this drug was venetoclax, it caused too many infections. So even though the MRD negativity rate was higher, the overall survival rate was, the overall survival was lower. So these are the, the pitfalls of MRD testing. And, um, you know, that so, so it can fool you, and, and it's not as, you know, it's still not as good as something like overall survival. So I think that's really the struggle right now with using MRD as what we call a surrogate uh, endpoint. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And the venetoclax was when they ran that trial for all patients, not just 1114 patients, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. if if they would have run the trial specifically in 1114 and the subset analyses show this, you know, those patients did great and they were really yeah. driving all of the benefits. But I think it's instructive of the way that, I mean, this could happen with any other drug that you're studying, right? There may be a certain mm-hmm. subset that really benefits that's driving the difference in responses and driving the differences in progression-free survival. But then when you look at overall survival, there's there's either no difference or it, it could potentially be worse. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to designing the right trial. 
Now, some have uh, now it, it seems uh, some have looked at what's called sustained MRD negativity as a more important endpoint. So, sustained MRD negativity means two MRD negative results that are separated by at least a year. And the thought is that if you can show sustained MRD negativity, um, you're sort of in some ways accounting for patients who've been able to to live long enough to get to another endpoint, you know, another um, uh, another result, but also you're showing that the disease is continually suppressed. And, you know, that's probably what we need to see in order to make any, um, you know, uh, decisions about, um, uh, you know, using it as an endpoint or even for clinical decision-making, that we probably need to see a sustained MRD negativity um, rather than just a single time point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can I ask you a question about overall survival in today's landscape with myeloma? It just seems to me that let's say you're newly diagnosed and you join a clinical trial and you're doing like a quad therapy or something as your induction, and that's your trial. And then you relapse and then you start other therapy and you have like five lines of therapy and, and you live for 15 years and then you die. Like how how in the world do you determine what of those you know, 10 therapies that you had contributed to your overall survival. That's, that, I, I think that's my mental challenge about using overall survival as an as the best endpoint because you're, patients you're, keep yeah. getting treated over and over again. I don't get it. I think it's. I think this question is most relevant for patients who are earlier on in their journey, right? When you're talking about mm-hmm. newly diagnosed or early relapse. You know, if somebody is doing uh, one of these CAR-T trials in the late settings in, you know, five or six prior lines of therapy, actually overall survival is probably a great endpoint to look at because, mm-hmm. you know, the differences are going to be pretty significant. But I, yeah, I'm with you, sense. you know, I, I'm with you, though. I, I have uh, some reservations about, you know, I'm not a purist in this sense where, I think that, you know, overall survival has its disadvantages in the sense that there's constantly innovation. Now, you know, an OS purist, so to speak, would say, well, hold on. What does it matter what the order of the drugs or the sequence of the drugs that you get is? If you're living the same amount of time, does it, what is it, what matters? You know, why does it matter? You know, a patient doesn't necessarily experience progression-free survival, right? like if you progress but you live the same amount of time, did it really matter? Now, I that that's what some people would say. I would argue that there's definitely things that I mean, a psychological impact from my own experience and uh, from progressing and having to start a new therapy. Um, and you know, I would like to always try to get as much time, you know, out of a single line of treatment. Than without, uh, then you know, then uh, then to, you know, uh, sequence things out in a different way. So you take quadruplet therapy, for instance, combining four drugs as induction treatment, which seems mm-hmm. primed to show a, a progression-free survival benefit. But we don't know if the overall survival is going to be different in the long run. It it may not be if you add a CD38 monoclonal antibody, which is what's kind of been added to the regimen to make it four drugs. If you were to hold off on that and add it later, your outcomes may be the same after two lines of therapy, right? It might all equal out in the wash. And we've seen mm-hmm. that with transplant. When you don't do a transplant up front but you right. do it later, 
it, it might all equal out. Now, uh-huh. you have to account for what's called attrition. So some people die because of progression or something else uh, in between each line of therapy. So there's not a guarantee that a patient will make it to the next line of therapy. And for that reason, you know, we, may want to, uh, we might want to maximize the treatments that we have available, uh, you know, at each um, level. And that's how I actually do like to approach it. So uh, while, you know, I, I, I like to give, you know, I like to give everybody listening here a, a sense of both opinions and make maybe a decision on their own, but I, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, overall survival is, is actually a really challenging uh, to look at in, in the newly diagnosed setting or even early relapse setting because of what you've just mentioned, the constant innovation and the changes in therapy such that it makes it hard to really understand the impact of, the, um, you know, of our, of our regimens. Yeah, it's, tr- it's tricky because you look at stem cell transplant like the example that you used, and, yeah, there was no overall survival benefit. But if you can get more years in remission, then you could more likely jump to something else in that window of of time, um, to a new ther- a newly developed therapy, to a bispecific or to a CAR T or something like that, in that time and kind of I, I don't know I feel like as patients we're playing chess with our lives you know and every move counts, and so to me sometimes I look at it strategically like that like okay maybe not and on the overall survival but will it give me enough time for something new to be developed and then I can jump to something else. So it's not the purest research great... perspective, that's for sure. <laughs> but... Yeah, but, you know, I think that's important. If it's important to patients, I mean, who am I to say what's important to patients, right? You guys are the ones that know, I mean, right? So I, I feel like um, that's the, the piece that's a, a little bit of an unknown. And when I ask most patients, I think they would agree with you that, that they would like to maximize um, what they, you know, their treatments at each, at each stage. You know, where it really gets interesting is with CAR-T therapy. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. two CAR-T therapies FDA approved, and now we have two phase three trials showing that when you use it even a little bit earlier than the initial approval from the FDA, we're seeing that it's better than the other, eight, you know, other options out there. And not just that, but instead of having to come in weekly or even more in some cases for treatment, these patients are off of treatment. Right, I mean, they they still may be dealing with side effects from their from the CAR T therapy, but they could potentially be off of treatment in some cases as long as three years or, or more. Um, if you look at like the data with Carvicti, for instance, so mm-hmm. now you have a situation where quality of life in the long run could be significantly better with a drug, um, where o- overall survival is not. Um, right, because if somebody gets a CAR-T yeah. later, maybe it'll make up the difference, right? Uh, but my mm-hmm. argument is here we might see a significant improvement in, in quality of life. So that's why I'm so bullish on CAR-T for patients, especially even earlier in relapse, is that, you know, the tolerability in the long run and the lack, the, the, the home time that patients get back in the long run is, is very significant. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay, well, time goes by fast, um, and we have some more things to talk about. So let's talk about clinical trials that are using MRD testing in the trial. When I did a search on clinicaltrials.gov, I found 141 
um, but you kind of outlined about five that we might want to talk about. So why don't, you, why don't we stop with your MRD to stop study and just talk about how these are being used in trials today. Oh my God! I mean, I could, you know, I could talk about this study for the rest of the time, but I'll keep it short. So, with well, actually, let me let me back up because why don't we talk about the studies that have already been published that actually have used it? You know, because sometimes people don't okay, realize sure. that MRD has been used in clinical trials uh, uh, to guide decision making. So, um, you know, I think there's two. Uh, well, yeah, I, I would say there's two big ones that we should talk about. So, the master trial. Um, was a, um, a trial that looked at patients who got quadruple therapy called DERA-KRD, and then they got a transplant. And they had MRD testing basically after each uh, stage of therapy. And uh, basically what the idea was is that any patient that had two consecutive MRD-negative results using NGF with the clonaseq assay could then discontinue treatment altogether. So if you were MRD negative after four cycles and a transplant, you're done. And mm-hmm. if you weren't, then you would keep going with additional cycles of DERA-KRD and potentially even lenalidomide maintenance. But once you had two consecutive MRD negative tests, you stopped treatment completely. This was a very aggressive de-escalation study. And they mm-hmm. had some patients who had standard risk disease, and they had a lot of patients who had high-risk disease. And what they've shown is that a large percentage of patients remained free of disease progression and free of um, MRD resurgence, meaning converting to MRD positivity, um, you know, at, um, at several uh, years out. Now, the patients mm-hmm. who did not do well in the study were the ones who had two or more high-risk uh, mutations, high-risk abnormalities um, by cytogenetics. In those patients, only about 50% of them remained off of treatment uh, and without progression or death, you know, even uh, two years out. So, uh, you know, that's probably not the population we want to be doing this for. But it was a great proof of concept that you could use MRD testing to guide. Now, I told you that sustained MRD negativity is one year apart. These were not. These were not sustained MRD negativity. And it makes me wonder what would have happened if patients actually were on therapy long enough to show sustained MRD negativity before stopping. Would the outcomes have been even better? Now, the, um, we were uh, involved in an um, investigator-initiated phase three study between the United States and Poland called the ATLAS trial that was published earlier this year. And the ATLAS trial um, looked at patients who had finished uh, induction and a transplant and were now going on to maintenance therapy. And the standard of care for a while now has been lenalidomide maintenance. And we investigated whether adding carfilzomib to the maintenance therapy would improve outcomes. In particular, we were looking at progression-free survival. And um, what we did, though, is we allowed... So, so patients would do three years of this KRD or or lenalidomide, and it was a randomization. But what we did in this study is that patients who were on KRD with the carfilzomib, if they were MRD negative after six cycles, they could stop the carfilzomib and as long as they had standard risk disease and go, go on to just lenalidomide alone. So this is a de-escalation approach in a different way, not stopping treatment completely, but dropping this proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib, and what we found so far is that 
on the whole, patients who got KRD had better progression-free survival than patients who were getting uh, lenalidomide alone. But also, the patients who uh, stopped earlier did just as well as the ones who continued on for three years. In other words, MRD negativity could be used potentially to guide de-escalation for patients in whom we use that strategy. Okay. So those are the two existing trials that are really out there that already show what we can do. Um, You know, we were involved in a a study, we ran a study, a small study called of um, elituzumab and KRD, and we did the same thing. Patients who had MRD negativity could drop carfilzomib in that study as well, and we did not see any difference in outcomes. Okay, fine. MRD to stop, though, is, is more like the master trial where we're actually stopping treatment completely for patients who are on maintenance therapy for at least a year and have shown that they are MRD negative by the deepest levels of, of MRD testing that we can do, which is 10 to the minus 6, okay, 1 in a million by uh, next generation sequencing. And the study is still ongoing, but what we reported back in December is that 84% of patients after one year from stopping treatment didn't even have any uh, evidence of disease by MRD testing one year out. So they, these are, this is 84% of patients were free of death. No yeah. one died on the study, fortunately, um, of progression and MRD resurgence, meaning converting to MRD positivity. And we're following patients for three years on this study, and then off-study we hope to follow them even further. And we're also collecting quality-of-life data, performing peripheral blood tests, doing everything that we can to figure out how can we identify the patients that are able to safely discontinue treatment. Now, you remember this pool analogy that I mentioned at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. That it's poss- there's a part of the pool that we cannot reach. Let's call that analyzing 10 million cells in the bone marrow. So what we try to do in MRD to stop is allow us to access the deepest part of the pool. We can actually take 10 million cells from the bone marrow. That's not the hard part. The hard part is analyzing that number of cells to be able to tell if there's one in 10 million. So we devised this technique in order to be able to filter down just the cells of interest from this 10 million cells that we took to uh, be able to tell if there's any disease when we look at that sample. And oddly enough, well, I, I wouldn't say oddly enough, what our, our, our hypothesis so far has been confirmed that you can detect disease when you do this technique, even when it wasn't detectable by, this, by the regular assay, the 10 to the minus 6 assay. And not only that, but those patients are the ones who seem to be progressing later on down the line. So, If you use a deeper method, you could detect the disease and potentially figure out who shouldn't be discontinuing treatment in those circumstances. And that's what we're hoping to show after three years of follow-up as well. Well, that would be just so huge because if, I mean, having patients take a break in therapy is, you know, mentally, psychologically, um, just even with your immune system, to be able to stop for a season so that you can have some of that recovery would be very helpful to patients, if possible, and the cost, too. So in lots of ways, Absolutely. that that would be Absolutely. so fantastic if that's possible to identify them without impairing their outcomes. So I mean, that's a great thing. point. 
Yeah, so um, there's a similar trial going on at Sloan Kettering, and they've um, published their initial, or they presented their initial quality of life data. And what they showed with the quality of life data is that um, actually it wasn't better since stopping lenalidomide, uh, particularly, which is a little bit surprising. Um, and uh, I can say that we've, we've held off on analyzing our quality of life outcomes, uh, our quality of life data until we had more long-term follow-up, but we hope to be able to share that soon. Um, but, but that was an interesting and, and a bit surprising. So, but I can certainly tell you from my own experience that patients definitely enjoy uh, having time off of therapy. Um, I think it it's, um, really makes a huge difference. And even among the patients who have progressed, we've been able to actually very quickly and deep and get their disease into a deep response. In some cases, go, getting back to MRD negativity. So, you know, there's something about their disease that allows it to be very sensitive to treatment. Now, there are two uh, other studies I wanted to mention that are using, you know, MRD to guide decision-making. One is called the Dramatic Study, which is a cooperative group study. It's a very large study. And it starts out actually randomizing patients after transplant to either get lenalidomide or lenalidomide and daratumumab to see which one might be better. But then there is actually this second randomization later down the line where patients in both arms who are MRD negative after two years um, will be randomized to either continue their treatment or stop altogether. And then we'll follow and see what happens. So we're going to get a lot of data from this trial. One is, um, you know, uh, what is um, the impact of uh, daratumumab in addition to lenalidomide? But also, what is the impact of stopping after two years of therapy? And I think that's going to be super, super helpful. I will be much older and have even less hair than I do now when we'll get that answer. <laughs> and that's why, I, that's why we're hoping that MRD to stop will be helpful. But I certainly think this is going to, to reap um, a lot of benefits in the long term. There's another cooperative group study called the Equate Study, which takes newly diagnosed patients who get daratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. And if they have not achieved MRD negativity with that regimen, then uh, bortezomib or Velcade is added to it. So it's kind of like an add-on trial to try, try to escalate therapy mm -hmm. uh, to see yeah. if you can get them to, to MRD negativity. And that's another one that I think is um, a really interesting question that could be very clinically applicable to us, uh, you know, in the near future. Yeah, so fascinating. So many different strategies, but all great for patients to to come to this, these conclusions. These are such important questions you're asking in these trials yeah. and so helpful for patients. Okay, um, we are okay on time, I think. Um, is, I'm wondering, you had mentioned the adaptive test. Is there a best test that's being used in these clinical trials? Like you mentioned earlier, that the you know the level of sensitivity wasn't standardized and the type of test wasn't standardized. So, are do do you ever run multiple types of tests for MRD testing in these clinical trials? You can kind of do head-to-head -head comparison with the tests or the outcomes, and so, um, yeah, that's that might that's be difficult if you have to do a poll that has to be high quality, right? 
Right. So the first pull, meaning the first sample that you, the first few milliliters that you take from the bone marrow aspirate, that's the best stuff. That's the gold. That's what you mm-hmm. want. The stuff that comes after that tends to become more diluted. So, you know, if you take 20 milliliters from the aspirate, that, you know, some of that stuff is not going to be very good. Ideally, what you would do is do two separate um, pokes, um, which mm-hmm. any patient listening is probably cringing. So, you yes. know, <laughs> but, but the first pull of the aspirate is always the best. Now, um, there was a, a study called the Forte trial that um, actually uh, did both flow cytometry and NGF and found that um, they correspond, when you use the same sensitivity for those tests, they correspond very uh, closely. There's not a lot of okay. difference in, in the test. So I think the bigger issue is not the test that you use, but the depth that you use. And in yeah, my opinion, 10 to the minus 6 is the best. 10 to the minus 6 has better, you know, if you're a 10 to the minus 6, you have better outcomes if you're negative at that level than if you're only negative at 10 to the minus 5th. In this French study called the IFM 2009 trial, patients got one year of lenalidomide maintenance, had MRD testing, and then they were followed without, regardless of their MRD results, they were followed um, off of treatment. So these are people who are actually off of treatment by design because they couldn't get lenalidomide paid for indefinitely like was done in the United States trial. And what mm-hmm. they found is that if you were negative at 10 to the minus 6, just on one occasion after one year of maintenance, um, you had a, a 75% chance of being free of progression or death after three years. Whereas if, it wow. was, if you were only negative at 10 to the minus 5, it was something on the order of 45%. Okay? Wow. So... That, that tells me that being negative at 10 to the minus 6 is much more important than 10 to the minus 5th. Now, here's what's crazy to me, and I, maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, but the FDA has issued guidance, and they said, hey, if you're going to do a master trial, and you're going to do an MRD to stop, and you're going to do an ATLAS trial or whatever it is, and you're going to make decisions based on the MRD test, we don't recommend using 10 to the minus 6 as your limit because – not everyone's going to have a result at 10 to the minus 6 because of dilution of the specimen or it's hard to get it. And also, in particular, the assay may not, the, the accuracy tends to not be as good at the very limits of that test. So they say you should really use 10 to the minus 5th as the threshold because you can be very confident about that result. But in my opinion, if you're talking about stopping treatment in patients who you know have disease, that seems mm-hmm. wrong to me. That seems inappropriate. So the master trial and many others have used 10 to the minus fifth as the cutoff, including this dramatic trial that I mentioned. But mm-hmm. in MRD to stop, we, we thought about this very carefully and decided that we were only going to use 10 to the minus six because we couldn't in good conscience, in our opinion, stop treatment in patients who we knew had some disease uh, at a level that has been validated at that 10 to the minus six level. So you asked me, what's the best test? It's 10 to the minus 6, and I think that's really what we should be focusing on is, is not 10 to the minus 5th. You'll see a lot of reporting at 10 to the minus 5th because that's what the guidelines have stated previously, and um, that's what the FDA accepts, and that's what is most feasible for most patients. You know, people who are on a lot of treatment, especially after transplant or something like that, it's hard to get 2 million cells to look at to even give you um, – you know, a result at 10 to the minus 6. But if I'm a patient, if I'm a physician, 
You know, if I'm taking care of somebody with myeloma, that's what I want. I want 10 to the minus 6 negativity. Yeah, that makes sense, and it seems much more meaningful as a result than you really know, and you're making decisions with greater confidence. Then let's just hope for the Absolutely. best and hope that was good enough, you know. If you or if you already know that, that would make sense to me as a patient. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I want to open it up for caller questions, and we had one emailed question. So if you have a question for Dr. Nerman, um, please dial 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And while we're waiting, um, Deborah emailed in a question, and she said, do you recommend that a non-secretary patient have MRD testing done before and or after getting a stem cell transplant? Yeah, but I would say that for a secretory patient as well. So just so everybody's aware, non-secretory refers to patients who do not, whose myeloma does not produce a protein that's detectable in the blood or not at a very high level. And so it's very hard to monitor disease uh, response in these patients. You have to do more frequent bone marrow biopsies or PET scans to be able to detect um, any residual disease. But that's the beauty of MRD testing. Um, in the bone marrow with NGS or flow cytometry. You, you don't have to rely on the protein product. You know, mass spectrometry, that could be a little bit more challenging because you do, but uh, as far as bone marrow biopsy tests that we have, um, I, I absolutely would, yeah. But I would do that for mm-hmm. secretory patients too, by the way. So. Yeah, okay, good to know. Yeah. I know non-secretory patients, it's very difficult, and, but you're doing a bone marrow, so that's how you measure it with those patients and not... Not necessarily in the blood. Okay, we have right. um, two more questions. Um, 5539, caller ending in 5539, go ahead with your question. Um, hi, um, you can hear me? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I have plasma cell leukemia. I was diagnosed in November. Um, I've been treated for about six months now. I'm just off treatment because I'm getting my stem cells harvested soon. So it's on um, Dara, Dexamethasone, Velcade, um, and something. Um, now I then changed to Dara, um, methoprednisone because I had trouble with the Dexamethasone, um, Kyprolis. Um, I'm just wondering, because it's plasma cell leukemia, I'm just getting such mixed messages. Is plasma cell leukemia always high risk. I am MRD negative now via bone marrow biopsy. I'm trying to find out as you're speaking if it's 10 to the negative 6 testing. Um, So I'm just wondering, can you clear up for me plasma cell leukemia? If I'm responding, am I positive now or am I still wary that because it's plasma cell leukemia, um, it's going to come back and it's going to come back quickly? Is that always a given? First of all, that's awesome. I am so happy to hear that. And it sounds like you've been through a lot, and it's great to hear, you know, uh, that at least by some measure, you're MRD negative. Um, To answer your question, I mean, plasma cell leukemia typically um, does behave aggressively, but one of the things that we notice is that, um, you know, it does respond well initially to therapy. One of the challenges is actually not about whether it, it, it goes into a response, but can you sustain it? Right, so you've heard me talk about sustained MRD negativity a couple of times now, and I think that would be the really important piece. So what I would say is it doesn't matter so, so I, you know, 
if you think about myeloma like people who have different personalities and give off a first impression, the first impression of yours would have been a very shady one, not somebody you want to be friends with. But after time, maybe you've gotten to know them and you think, okay, well, I can get along, right? But what really matters now is to see, this is the true test of friendship, so to speak, right? Can you treat this, uh, can you sustain that MRD negativity um, and, you know, whether it's with a transplant or whatever else is being done and, and keep it there? Because if so, then that is probably what matters more than anything else, right? Maybe our first impression was wrong. Uh, does that right. help uh, clarify a little bit? Yeah, it does. I, ha- I do have the 1114 translocation, and I am on the genetic class. Revlimid and genetic class are the ones that I forgot. Um, so, yeah, good, that's what I keep trying to ask my doctors, and I have good doctors. I won't mention their names, but they're, they're specialists. Um, but they just keep kind of navigating to not answering, was I high risk, and now that I'm responding so well, am I lower risk? So that's you're, I don't know that you would ever go to low risk. You know, you have to you have to really be more aggressive with plasma cell leukemia because there's still always a risk of of earlier relapse, even if you've had a good response. And this is one of the perils of MRD testing, where one result is not all that we go on. We have to see sustained MRD negativity. And if you were to show that, I would feel really good about where you are. I would think that. In, to some extent, you've neutralized some of that high-risk nature. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, great question. Very tricky situation and great question. Okay, caller ending in 3702. And we'll try to do two more. I know we're over time. we'll are over. we be over time, so let's try to be short, I guess. Go ahead with your question. Uh, yes. I, um, I've had a couple clonocyte tests completed. I've had myeloma for five years, and actually right after um, the first initial treatment, my doctor requested that test, and it came back as 17 cells in a million. And then so they kept me on Revlimid for five years, and um, just in the fall, in September, they ran the test again. This was the Clonoseq test. It was seven cells, and then in March, ran it again. I had a new have a new physician, and um, then it was zero MRD negative. So I'm off of Revlimid. I've had history of breast cancer, plus some multiple myeloma. I thought I was very concerned about another cancer because of Revlimid, and the Revlimid didn't seem to be. I mean, I was such at a low level, but it just kind of kept me at a low level. It didn't do much. So they took me off of it and are monitoring it. But my question is probably more a technical one, that when the report came back from Clonasec, it has specimen-used blood, not in the marrow was sent in and some blood. And I actually called them just because I was curious, and I thought, is this the blood-based test? And they said, it's the same. (laughs) It's the same as bone marrow cell. I don't know if you can shed any light on that. I'm not sure. worried, yeah. but it just seems kind of odd, you know? Yeah. Well, um, so coming, so you can, someone can send blood tests and do Clonaseq. Actually, Clonaseq is approved for ALL and CLL as well. And uh, oftentimes the MRD tests there are done on the blood, and they show very similar results to the bone marrow. But that's because those cells like to live in the blood, and myeloma, as I mentioned, is not. So it's certainly good to be zero in the blood, 
but I would not give it the same weight as a zero, so to speak, in the bone marrow. Um, okay. The bone marrow is by far, you know, the best test. Um, bone marrow testing with Clonaseq is, is really going to be the best way. And just to give you a sense, so if you look at some of the data, um, people who are on lenalidomide maintenance, within the first year, about any, depends on the study that you look at, but somewhere between 12 and 40 percent, it's a pretty wide range, but 12 to 40 percent of patients will convert to MRD negativity within the first year. About half okay. of that will convert in the second year, right? So, and then beyond that, we don't really know, but in general, what I advise patients is I would be very pleasantly surprised if you were to convert to MRD negativity now, but it's very unlikely that I would see conversion to MRD negativity after two years of maintenance therapy. Not to say it can't happen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but just right. that I, I, I rarely, rarely do, and the data doesn't seem to suggest it. Um, so you know, that's kind of where, where we stand with it right now. Okay, okay. So they could probably, the next next time, just request the bone marrow. There was a new physician, I think he was like, blood. I I personally don't do the, yeah, I personally don't do blood testing uh, clonoseq, although I know that they'll offer it and some physicians do it. Um, We are sort of doing some research on that to understand it, but in general, you have to know that it's not as sensitive as the bone marrow. So a positive result can be helpful. You could spare you a a bone marrow test, but a negative result does not mean that your bone marrow is negative. Okay, okay. All right, well, thank you very much. Yeah, great question. Thank you. And Dr. German, I know we're over time. Do you have time for one more question or do you need to go? Of course. Let's do one more. Okay, caller ending in 1871. Go ahead with your question. Well, thank you, Dr. Derman, for, for making the time. You know, you, you so elegantly noted how MRD's role in routine clinical decision-making, it's, it's beginning to take shape. I think, you know, my question is really, are there specific points in the disease course where you see it taking shape sooner? You know, for instance, in my own family's case, we have someone who completed quadruplet therapy. They've done their stem cell transplant. They're entering maintenance. They're standard risk. And, you know, there's a divide right now in the field that seems between single-agent lend maintenance or those who follow, you know, the Griffin trial to a T and look to add DARA as well. Do you see MRD or do you use in your own practice, all else being equal with patient factors, to help sort of inform or tip the decision-making process one way or the other? Oh, my God, this is a great question. I, it is a great question. I'm going to give my best – I'm going to do my best to to answer it in the best way that, you know, in short in a brief manner. But um, – let me tell you what we don't know. You know, I don't know that if we do MRD testing after four cycles or six cycles of induction therapy, that that's really enough to determine should somebody go to transplant, for instance, or not. You know, I mean, because if somebody's MRD positive at a low level, I don't know, that still means the treatment worked really well. And maybe they just need more treatment, and it doesn't mean a transplant in order to be able to, to drive it down, right? I told you it could take two years before people get to MRD negativity in some cases. Now, post-transplant is interesting because, you know, that's, that's when usually the first time that I'll use um, something, you know, like the deepest techniques um, after transplant because I feel like, number one, it's, it starts the trend, right? That's the time point where I start to see what, are the, what is the impact of all of our interventions. And if someone's not going to transplant, it might be after eight cycles or something like that to kind of mirror what's been done in clinical trials. So, you know, eight cycles or after a transplant, that's kind of the first peak. 
Now, I don't necessarily make a decision on that result in and of itself. Again, somebody who's MRD positive alone, they, they still might be doing really well. You know, like that, that's still a good response. And I've seen plenty of patients who convert to MRD negativity a year later. But it's helpful for me to know what the trajectory is. If I wait to do MRD testing until a year after their transplant or after eight cycles of induction, I have no idea where they were, where they started from, right? So I really like to have the trend. So, you know, I use more high risk versus standard risk to determine, you know, if I'm going to do LEN maintenance versus something more than that. But then I'll use MRD testing right after transplant and then a year later to figure out, hey, that high-risk patient that I put on carfilzomib or bortezomib or daratumumab, if they are MRD negative, you know, before and after or they converted to MRD negativity, hey, maybe I could pull off that proteasome inhibitor, give them a little bit of time away from the clinic now. Maybe I could pull off that um, daratumumab, give them, you know, a little bit less therapy. Uh, so that's, you know, one way that I do it. And for the people who are, you know, maybe just on lenalidomide, I say just, but obviously it's still a drug, um, if they can show sustained MRD negativity, then that's when I start to have the conversation of, hey, you interested in our MRD to stop trial? Or, hey, here's the data from MRD to stop. Do you want to stop therapy at some point? You know, is that a goal for you? And um, I like to create that trend. So I hope that answers the question, but, but basically that's how I'm using it right now. Yeah, great answer and great question. Thank you so much. And Dr. Derman, thank you so much. We appreciate you for this has been a fantastic discussion. Your explanations are so clear and um it's just wonderful. So we really, really appreciate it and are grateful for you doing the the work on all of this to so we can come to these important conclusions for patients. Because if we can get off treatment and still have the same outcome, we would love to do that. I agree with you. And, Jenny, thank you so much for creating this forum for, you know, really informed patients to be able to ask such excellent questions. And you always come so prepared. I, um, you know, I, I guess I want to give one caveat as we finish, which is to say you're talking to an MRD evangelist, so to speak, who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, very much believes in this technology. But, you know, your own physician, um, you'll see a lot of difference of opinions on this. And it's important to recognize that. And I, I recognize that, too. You know, there's not one way to do this thing. Um, so it's really important to have these conversations and ask the tough questions to your physicians, to your clinicians who are who are part of your team. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes you do need to ask the clinicians and um, even to run the initial test to get your baseline so you can have sequential results. And, th- like, the more you learn as a patient, the more you can ask those questions of your care team and understand their rationale for doing it or not doing it. So that's always important to become an educated and well-prepared patient as you go into to, uh, doing especially your bone marrow biopsies because, you know, you're doing them anyway, so why not? <laughs> In my opinion, Amen. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, and we're so grateful to our listeners for listening to Help the This Health Tree podcast. Um, Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in myeloma research and what it means for you. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.